Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 4, Three Sundays. Throughout Season 2's initial episodes, Mad Men introduced new characters and conveyed the social unrest looming in early 1962. Season 2 established several prominent subplots, including the fallout of the American Airlines Flight 1 tragedy, the entrance of Jimmy and Bobby Barrett, and the conflicted personal life of Peggy Olson. But to this point, Mad Men hadn't tied these stories into a single, cohesive episode. Episode 2.4, Three Sundays, deals with many of the ideas Mad Men has introduced in Season 2. The episode reunites Mad Men's familiar ensemble. It's written by Andre and Marie Jacquemettin and directed by Tim Hunter. But in watching this episode, I couldn't help but note its atmospheric quality, conveyed through costumes, set design, props, and music that all stand out a bit more than usual. Three Sundays unfolds in three parts, one for each Sunday leading up to Easter 1962. It's an episode marked by religious undertones and densely packed with religious iconography, one that focuses on Peggy's personal life and introduces another new character, Father Gill. Colin Hanks is the son of Tom Hanks and Samantha Luz. Before Mad Men, Hanks appeared in the TV series Roswell and co-starred with Jack Black in Orange County. He grew excited about Mad Men during season one and called his agent at 3 a.m. after binge-watching the first five episodes. Hanks may have been Weiner's first choice to play Arthur Case, but Weiner eventually cast him as Father Gill, the young, visiting priest of Peggy's Brooklyn neighborhood. The young priest is an archetypal character in American cinema. Priests have been portrayed by actors like Gregory Peck in Keys of the Kingdom, Robert De Niro in True Confessions, and Montgomery Clift in I Confess. These portrayals are obviously fictional, but there is some truth behind Hollywood's depiction of the young priest as a celebrity. In mid-century America, Catholic priests were viewed with considerable status. They were immensely popular among their congregations. Younger priests were treated like stars, welcomed into the homes of churchgoers who sought their attention, guidance, and connection with God. We discussed the transformative Vatican II in episode 2.2, Flight 1, when I mentioned the conference as a harbinger of change within the Catholic faith. Vatican II loosened many of the church's more dogmatic rituals and rules, and Father Gill expresses this new wave of ideas. His modern interpretations of religion often clash with established tradition. This undoubtedly inspires Father Gill's attraction to Peggy Olson, another of Mad Men's silent generation characters, who typifies the generation's qualities of diligence and reform. It all ties nicely with Season 2's long-form investigation of young people and young ideas. I'm going to divide this episode into three sections, one for Passion Sunday, one for Palm Sunday, and one for Easter Sunday. I'll conclude with a discussion of the overarching themes and how the episode fits into the larger context of Season 2. Three Sundays will spend significant time on Father Gill's relationship with Peggy, it will examine the importance of fatherhood, and it will bring us, at last, to Sterling Cooper's long-awaited pitch for American Airlines. Part 1. Passion Sunday Three Sundays begins at Holy Innocence Catholic Church, located in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn at Beverly Road and East 17th Street. Mad Men's church scenes were filmed on location at St. James Episcopal Church in LA's Wilshire Center neighborhood. Monsignor Cavanaugh recites a sermon while Peggy slips out of Mass, hung over from the previous night's work. She steps into the hallway where she finds two young boys, their noses pressed against the wall as punishment. 
Father Gill tells them to behave and shoes them back into the mass. He mentions that he'll be visiting Peggy's family that evening before he escorts her back inside. Don and Betty wake that morning to the ringing of their telephone. An overhead shot shows them stirring, their ashtrays and cigarettes and Don's watch placed on their nightstands, Don's shoes on the floor at the edge of the bed. Betty answers the phone and Don urges her to cancel their plans. Betty finally submits and hangs up the phone, and Don moves closer. It's the first time Mad Men has shown any intimacy in their marriage since Don's impotence in episode 2.1, for those who think young. But the couple is interrupted when Bobby and Sally enter their bedroom. What are you doing? Sally asks. Sleeping, Don insists. Later that morning, the Drapers sit in their family room. Sally pours tall glasses of vodka for her parents, suggesting she's not yet graduated from bartending school. Betty reads Babylon Revisited and Other Stories, a collection of short works by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which ties back to The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, Fitzgerald's 1922 novella, mentioned in episode 2.3, The Benefactor. Betty gets upset when Bobby fidgets with the radio. You'll remember that season 2 established Betty's frustration with Bobby through a story about copying another kid's drawing at school. She resents Bobby's dishonesty as a reflection of Don. But Don's not apologetic about his own dishonesty, and he's reluctant to discipline his son. He sits reading the newspaper as Perry Como's song Blue Room plays over the radio. He makes everything sound like Christmas, Don says. Betty invites him to dance. Don takes her, drinks in hand, and they sway to the music. Matthew Weiner wanted desperately to include Blue Room in an episode of Mad Men. He claims this scene is a commentary on Betty, who stuck in the nostalgia of her high school days. This version of Blue Room was released in 1948, when Betty was about 16 years old. Don makes several comments about this, noting the song's age and joking about Betty's high school reputation. But the scene feels sentimental, like the loving couples depicted in Hollywood. The song's lyrics reveal a man's dream of being happily married. We'll have a blue room A new room for two rooms Where every day's a holiday Because you're married to me In Brooklyn, Father Gill stops by the Olsen household, greeted by Peggy's mother, Catherine, her sister, Anita, and their friend, Tootsie Yates. Anita's husband, Gary Raspola, is introduced and rests on the sofa with debilitating back pain. This detail is consequential. It provides more insight into Anita's personal life. Father Gill eats dinner in the comfort of the Olsen home, which is decorated with framed photographs of two famous Catholics, Pope John XXIII and John F. Kennedy. The conversation reveals that Gill is a visiting priest, who previously studied at the Vatican. Roger, meanwhile, has dinner with his family. Mad Men doesn't explicitly mention the restaurant's name, but it's elegant, decorated in a glamorous Art Deco style. This is another on-location scene reminiscent of old Hollywood, shot at the Cicada restaurant in Los Angeles. Roger urges his daughter Margaret to make wedding plans with her fiancé, Brooks Hargrove, but Margaret stalls, giving several excuses while hiding the couple's plans to elope. Roger's wife Mona effuses about her wedding day, Roger looks at her and struggles to remember the feeling. He begs Brooks to help, but Brooks repeatedly lets Margaret do whatever she wants. We return to the Olsen home, where the ladies set out a buffet of desserts. Peggy uses a stool to climb onto the kitchen counter and reach the top cabinets. Catherine brags about Peggy's job in advertising, trying to impress Father Gill. She works on Madison Avenue, Catherine says proudly. She comes up with the words in advertisements. Anita seems jealous and mentions that Peggy never helps out at home. Peggy moves to leave and Father Gill offers her a ride. 
The young couple sits in the car outside a pizzeria. Mad Men doesn't show many exterior shots like this. You can't really control period authenticity in the middle of a modern city street. The scene builds tension through our expectations, developed through film tropes. Father Gill does seem attracted to Peggy, and our film intuition tells us he should make a move here, but rather than kiss her, he asks for advice. Gill is nervous about delivering his sermon on Palm Sunday. Peggy seems shocked that he would solicit her opinion, though they're the same age, Gill is a priest, a position she respects. But Peggy offers some practical advice. She first suggests making the sermon more relatable. I try to believe in what I'm selling, she comments. Try focusing on one person in the audience and speaking to them. Don and Betty stumble drunkenly into their bedroom, laughing as the kids play on their bed. Bobby jumps up and down and the bed frame breaks. Betty sends them to their rooms, but Sally complains that they haven't eaten dinner. Don says he'll take care of it, and Betty sits alone, frustrated. The story behind this scene comes from Sopranos producer Gianna Maria Smart, and the broken bed foreshadows the Draper's fracturing household. The opening section of Three Sundays portrays ideas of marriage and family, with little mention of advertising. While these scenes are hopeful, they each hint at some underlying conflict. The most obvious is Don and Betty's differing approaches to discipline. We sense that Bobby needs some kind of father figure in his life. But as Betty grows tired of Bobby's behavior, Don is reluctant to punish him. Peggy, meanwhile, is still caught between the worlds of Bay Ridge and Madison Avenue. She treads lightly in advising Father Gill, unsure of herself around a priest. But more significant is Peggy's sister, Anita, who grows jealous of Peggy. We saw hints of this conflict in episode 2.2, Flight 1. Anita seems to embody Mad Men's previously voiced sentiment of, I'm here, I matter. She struggles to feel important, as Peggy attracts more attention from their mother and from Father Gill. Roger seems miserably bored with his family life. He struggles with his daughter, another child of Mad Men's younger generations, who appears to enjoy rebelling against her father. Margaret's engagement prompts Roger to reflect on his own marriage. Remember that Roger has played a minor role since episode 1.11, Indian Summer, when a second heart attack forced him to quit smoking and presumably to quit cheating on his wife. Throughout season two, he desperately strives to recapture the feeling of youth. And as Mona describes their wedding day, Roger seems less infatuated with her than with the desire to feel young. When taken together, the three scenes in part one form a varied review of relationships. Mad Men peels back Don and Betty's idealized marriage, revealing their faults. Brooks and Margaret depict the carefree devotion of young love against Roger and Mona's fading romance. And Peggy seems drawn to Father Gill, a young man who respects her. Mad Men portrays these relationships as hopeful, but other feelings lurk too, boredom, desperation, and resentment and we sense these feelings will betray the episode's hopeful beginning. Part 2. Palm Sunday Part 2 opens the following Monday, as Ken and Pete entertain a client over lunch. Actor Michael Dempsey plays Marty Hasselback, an executive with Gorton's Frozen Fish. Ken introduces Vicky, a young prostitute. When Roger appears, Vicky introduces herself as Mrs. Hasselback. Roger seems charmed, and suggests he'd like to see her again. Bobby Barrett arrives unannounced at Don's office. I have Mrs. Barrett outside your office, Joan says. Should I send her in? Don fumbles for words. No, of course, he tells Joan. Bobby enters with a smile, a chic overcoat draped over her beige dress, accented by opulent gold jewelry and a gold turban hat. Mad Men isn't too subtle about showing her materialism through costume choices. Bobby sits down while Don pours her a drink. I have an idea for a TV show, she starts. Like Candid Camera only with Jimmy as the host. And he's Jimmy. It's called Grin and Barrett. 
Don smiles at the idea. It's derivative, with a twist, he says. They discuss pitching the series to ABC, but Don introduces a problem. The show creates a conflict with Jimmy's work for Utz. Bobby asks Don to resolve Jimmy's contractual issues, but Don is initially reluctant. Joan hears the latch of Don's office door as she sits outside. I was thinking about how to avoid being bored of you, Bobby says. This line was the inspiration for the entire scene. Bobby kisses Don, but he pulls away, insisting he has work to do. Bullshit, she responds. She stands in front of him and throws her coat on the floor at his feet. Roger finds Ken and Pete at the office, laughing about their lunch with Marty Hasselback. He asks about Marty's wife, who Ken explains is a hired prostitute. This scene was inspired by a real-life story from the ad industry, when a senior executive mistook a hired girl for a client's wife, and it reveals a bit of Roger's age. His youthful lasciviousness has faded with time, and he's perhaps a bit less cool, a bit out of touch. I have lots of numbers, Ken volunteers. Roger looks at him a bit disgusted and a bit impressed. He asks for Vicky's number and walks away. Don arrives home that evening greeted by Sally. You need to shave, she observes. You need to shave, Don responds. It's a funny exchange that reprises John Hamm's joke of repeating other characters' lines. Bobby broke the record player, Betty remarks. She looks accusingly at Don, who marches up the stairs and into Bobby's room. Mommy says you broke the record player, he scolds. I believe her. Don't do it again. He walks downstairs and finds Betty standing at the landing, where she implores Don to be stricter. Do you think you'd be the man you are today if your father didn't hit you? Madman's irony kind of writes itself sometimes. I find this scene consequential both to Madman's social commentary and its examination of the Draper's marriage. Hitting your children was common in the 60s. You'll remember Madman first portrayed this in episode 1.3, Marriage of Figaro, when the Draper's neighbor Jack Farrelly slapped Carlton's son. Don, though, seems hesitant. As Betty says, he's kind on the inside, he's kind with the kids. Madman introduced Archibald Whitman in episode 1.8, The Hobo Code. The younger Dick seemed frightened of his father. I think Don's gentler temperament is a rejection of his own upbringing. We know that Don is motivated by powerful emotions connected to his own experiences. His past is painful, and he wants something different for his children, something better. But to Betty, Don's inaction represents a refusal to take responsibility. We've mentioned the association between Bobby's and Don's misbehavior. Betty sees Bobby as a reflection of his father, and when Don refuses to discipline him, Betty mistakes this as a lack of genuine remorse. Remember that Don hasn't openly admitted his unfaithfulness. Betty undoubtedly suspects him of continued affairs, and her anger over Don's parenting is directly related to the dishonesty in their marriage. We skip forward to the morning of Palm Sunday, April 15, 1962. Bobby stands in front of the stove where Don fries some pancakes. Betty enters, wearing her nightgown, lugging Don's toolbox into the laundry room. It's clear that Don still hasn't fixed the bed. The phone rings, and Don answers, accosted by Duck Phillips. He says American Airlines has moved the pitch to Friday. Left momentarily unattended, Bobby burns his chin on the hot griddle and whimpers in pain. Don immediately hangs up and finds him in Betty's arms. He needs to go to the emergency room, she cries. She tells Don to take Sally with him to the office. Don begrudgingly agrees as Sally claps with delight. Catherine Olson places palm branches throughout her home. Palms have been used across many cultures to represent triumph, peace, and eternal life. The Greeks associated the palm branch with Nike, the goddess of victory, and the Egyptians used palms in funeral processions. Early Christians adopted the palm as a symbol of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, just days before his betrayal. Anita answers the door to find Father Gill. He's disappointed to learn that Peggy is at work. He hands Catherine a copy of his sermon. 
I felt like I was the only person you were talking to, she says. Father Gill has obviously taken Peggy's advice. When he leaves, Anita finally expresses her jealousy. She does whatever she feels like, Anita says of Peggy. Dawn leads Sally through Sterling Cooper's office as several young women observe them longingly. They find Joan at her desk, and Dawn asks her to babysit for the day. Joan seems less than thrilled. Later that day, Joan types at her desk while Sally makes conversation. You have big ones. My mommy has big ones too. And I'm going to have big ones when I grow up. Most of Sterling Cooper meets in the conference room, where Duck lays out his plan for the American Airlines pitch. This scene is incredibly detailed, the table littered with a mess of artwork, pencils, calendars, pamphlets, and other props. The characters are dressed in their weekend attire. Don wears a navy sweater and brown chinos. Pete sports a white sweater and some of the shortest shorts I've ever seen. Harry sits in the background. Why are you here? Duck asks. I'm the head of the television department, Harry responds. Duck wants to present several campaigns. He asks Don for a sneak peek, but Don refuses. He calls the creative team into his office, where he pours over the details of the rebranding effort, including Sal's artwork and Paul's in-flight menu. Sal seems overwhelmed throughout the meeting. Mad Men's crew was clearly in a rush to shoot this scene, and several parts would have been refilmed if they had more time. Clients don't like wiggle room, Don states. He wants to hone the pitch into a single idea. We've got a lot of bricks, he says, but I don't know what the building looks like. Roger is curiously absent from the American Airlines prep. Instead, he leads Vicky into a hotel room where they sit on the bed. Roger admits he's nervous. He warns that he's not in good health, but she reassures him. The prices may have changed, but the menu is still the same. Roger moves to kiss her, trying to feel that youthful spark of desire. I want everything I want, he says. This is perhaps the first time he's cheated on his wife, since his heart attack. He lays in bed while Vicky turns out the lights. Sterling Cooper breaks for dinner that evening. Several secretaries look jealously at Peggy, who eats while they stand waiting. We talked about Peggy's delicate position within the office in For Those Who Think Young. She's stuck between two groups, the secretaries, who scorn her because she's no longer a secretary, and the men, who reject her because she's not a man. Burke Cooper walks around the bullpen in a blue plaid cardigan, hilarious knee-length pants, and knee-length socks. He steps in something and curses as he pulls bubble gum from his sock. He looks up and spots Duck's secretary chewing gum. You there, chewing your cud. It's one thing to be unladylike. It's another to treat our office like a subway platform. Pack up your Wrigley's and go home. Cooper walks away angrily, pulling off his sock. Joyce acts shocked and tries to defend herself, but Duck approaches and thanks her. He hands her some money and tells her to come back tomorrow. He's clearly working the room in his favor. This place is a zoo. Thank you for getting him out of here for the day. Lose the gun and get yourself some dinner. He won't remember firing you. Sally walks into Paul Kinsey's office, where he sits on the couch, jotting his ideas on a notepad. She moves to Paul's desk and finds a framed picture of his girlfriend, Sheila. Is that your maid? No, she's my girlfriend. Do you kiss her? Sometimes. Do you lay on top of her? You know what, Sally? Your daddy's going to be angry if I don't do my work. Don emerges from his office and stands in the bullpen, finally delivering his idea for the pitch. American Airlines is not about the past any more than America is. Ask not about Cuba. Ask not about the bomb. We're going to the moon. 
throw everything out. Everything? There is no such thing as American history, only a frontier. That crash happened to somebody else. It's not about apologies for what happened. It's about those seven men in the room on Friday and what airline they are going to be running. This is a fitting sentiment for Don, a man who often ignores the past and simply moves forward. Season 2 is less about Don's past identity, focusing instead on the collapse of his family life. He struggles to show contrition for the infidelity that ruins his marriage. Don rarely confronts hardship head-on. He instead finds a way to move forward, avoiding the conflict that stands in his way. Remember that Don strives to control his story by ignoring whichever pieces of the past won't fit. And with this pitch to American, he suggests the airline take control of the narrative by ignoring the Flight 1 accident. Matthew Weiner has stated that this scene reflects the 60s fascination with public speaking that grew amidst the rise of JFK. Don's monologue grabs the office's attention. His confidence is magnetic, and he expresses a central part of himself. This idea is Don Draper. And I think we can learn something about authenticity in this scene, about the power of, as Peggy puts it, believing in what you're selling. Words become powerful when they're expressed with belief. And throughout this scene, Don's words are impactful. But despite the weight of Don's expression, Sal has no idea what he wants. Ken and Pete grow weary of his indecision. The secretaries realize they'll be working late. Sally, meanwhile, wanders around the office and notices a drink left unattended on someone's desk. She grabs the glass and hurries off. Roger and Vicky get dressed in their hotel room. He offers her a glass of champagne, but she mentions she has dinner plans. Roger is desperate to prolong their date and invites her to dinner himself. We sense that he's desperate for her companionship. Vicky suggests Lutess. She waxes romantically about the sound of taxis whooshing by in the rain. Roger drapes a coat over her shoulders, and they leave together. Sally lays passed out on the sofa that evening. You know she's making more than all of us, Joan says, exhausted with managing the chaos of Don's personal life. Don grabs Sally on his way out. The empty glass of whiskey falls from her hand, and Don notices it on the floor. Thanks for watching her, he says scornfully. The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are known to Christianity as the Gospels. The Gospel of John is often referred to as the Book of Signs. It depicts seven signs, or miracles, performed by Jesus before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The last of these signs is the raising of Lazarus. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Lazarus, of course, is symbolically linked with American Airlines. The airline's reputation is in shambles after the Flight 1 crash. Sterling Cooper has courted their business since episode 2.2 through Duck's connection with Shell Keneally, and Don's responsible for resurrecting their struggling brand. He enters the bullpen triumphantly, re-envisioning the airline in a powerful monologue. Flight 1, to Don, belongs to the past. American Airlines can still be redeemed. But Don's creative revelations inspire doubt and even jealousy from several Mad Men characters. Sal struggles to understand what Don is saying. Paul is hesitant to throw away work. Ken and Pete bemoan Don's indecision, and Joan becomes utterly disinterested in babysitting his life. Amidst the American Airlines prep, Part 2 also portrays Sally's exposure to adulthood. Three Sundays depicts her perhaps too mature ideas throughout these office scenes. She offhandedly remarks about Joan's breasts. She talks with Paul about race and sex, her do-you-lay-on-top-of-her question directly referencing intimacy she's witnessed between Don and Betty. And left unattended, she passes out after drinking a glass of whiskey. Though she's just eight years old, 
Sally reveals a lot of adult behavior. Season 1 portrayed Don as a largely uninvolved father. Season 2 shows his increased involvement in Sally's life. Betty, meanwhile, is distracted by her own interests. We sense that these forces, Don's more mature influence and Betty's inattention, push Sally towards independence and more adult behaviors. There is an undeniable social commentary in Mad Men's portrayal of Sally Draper. She is the embodiment of the baby boomer generation that grew up amidst the turmoil of the 60s and would eventually fight the Vietnam War. This is a generation raised in confusion amidst the redefining of social paradigms, and through Sally, Mad Men shows the loss of innocence for this generation's youth. But as Sally stretches forward toward adulthood, Roger reaches back to feel that familiar spark of youth. He sleeps with Vicky to rekindle the romance that's faded from his life. This is a brilliant comparison that bridges Mad Men's generations of characters. Roger's innocence lost to memory, while Sally matures in front of us. This is compelling writing that expands on Three Sundays' investigation of innocence and nostalgia. Part 3. Easter Sunday Sterling Cooper reconvenes for the American Airlines pitch on Good Friday, April 20th, 1962. The setup is another example of Three Sundays' atmospheric qualities, marked by playful jazz music. Everything in the set is meticulously ordered. Roger stretches as Don looks out the window. The group at last stands ready. Nine employees pose behind the boardroom table, with Burt Cooper sitting in the center. The shot evokes Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. I like to think of it as the Mad Men album cover. Duck enters and breaks the news. Shell Keneally was fired by American Airlines this morning. The mood immediately sinks, the excitement of the pitch deflated by Duck's announcement. What does that mean, Harry asks. That we have to deliver a stillborn baby, Don says. Pitching accounts is about connections, and at a moment's notice, with one firing, Sterling Cooper's pursuit of American Airlines has been ended. The American Airlines pitch isn't shown in Three Sundays, a decision Matthew Weiner weighed heavily. He claims he's proud of the result, and I think the choice to withhold the pitch was smart. After Keneally's firing, the meeting is no longer consequential, and we're almost more fascinated by the allure of things unseen. Don, Duck, and Roger linger in the conference room later that day. No regrets, fellas, Duck reassures. We were in it. That's the important thing. Don shoves a binder full of work at him that reads, Prepared for Shell Keneally of American Airlines. Duck leaves Don and Roger to talk alone. He was hired to bring in new business, Don reminds, not lose old business. But Roger reminds Don that this is how the ad business works. Sterling Cooper has to give up smaller clients to have a chance at the big brands. Old business is old business, he says. Roger's still riding the high of cheating on his wife with another woman. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but don't you love the chase? Anita Olsen sits in the seclusion of a confession booth that Friday. This scene is dramatically underexposed, with lots of darkness in the frame. Mad Men's crew labored to build the confessional, which feels both intimate and foreboding. Father Gill listens as Anita confesses her guilt. She's jealous of all the attention Peggy receives. What about my problems, Father? Anita pleads. She finally reveals Peggy's secret, that she mothered an illegitimate child. Father Gill hides his shock and tells Anita that she should forgive Peggy. Don comes home that evening and sits for dinner with his family. He's disappointed about the pitch, and Betty slides him a glass of wine. Bobby knocks over a drink with his toy robot, and Betty implores Don to do something. He reaches across the table, grabs the robot, and throws it across the kitchen. Betty turns in shock as it shatters to pieces against the kitchen wall. Sally and Bobby are frightened. Is that what you wanted? Don asks as he gets up and walks out. Betty rushes after him, and eight-year-old Sally moves to clean up the mess. Betty follows Don upstairs and into the bedroom. The kids sit at the landing and overhear their argument. Take no responsibility. 
anything that goes on in this house. Hey, the bills, clothes on your back, the damn stables. Don't you dare. I'm here all day, alone with them, outnumbered. What about Carla? Doesn't she count? It's not her job to raise our children. I'm here, then you come home and get to be the hero. Betty pushes him and Don shoves her back. She stands in the doorway, her face a mix of fear and rage, but she turns away and walks out as Don sighs disappointedly. Bobby finds him sitting alone in the bedroom. It's not a good time, Don says. Bobby stands in the doorway, the burn mark still red on his chin. Don reassures him it's okay. Dads get mad sometimes. Did your daddy get mad? He did. What did your daddy look like? Like me, but bigger. What did he like to eat? Ham. And this candy. It tasted like violets. And a beautiful purple and silver package. There's a stunning emotional contrast in this scene between Bobby's innocent apology and Don's conflicted remorse. The scene confronts Don's guilt over his inability to be a good father, as Don considers his own father's influence on his life. Madman has previously portrayed Don as fearful of his father, a harsh, judgmental man. But through his memories, Don begins to realize that he is just like his father, and confronted with Bobby's childlike innocence, Don makes no attempt to hide his past. What did you do? I told you he was a farmer. But he died. A long time ago. We have to get you and her daddy. On Easter Sunday, Peggy walks outside Holy Innocence Church. She wears white gloves and a light pink dress with a floral hat, conveying her innocence. Children race across the lawn, and the Bach cantata Sleeper's Wake builds in the background. Father Gill finds Peggy and thanks her. He wishes Peggy a happy Easter and hands her an Easter egg. For the little one, he says, as he walks away, and Peggy looks around distrustingly. Three Sundays concludes over Easter weekend in several scenes draped in religious symbolism. Part three begins on Good Friday with an image reminiscent of the Last Supper that foreshadows the death of the American Airlines deal. This has obvious consequences for Duck Phillips. The events of three Sundays erode any confidence in Duck's unfulfilled promises. Remember that Don eagerly hired Duck in episode 1.12, Nixon versus Kennedy. In just a few episodes, and no more than 18 months, his excitement has turned bitter. The idealization of the Draper's marriage has also faded. Mad Men instead portrays the reality of a family falling apart. Betty struggles with resentment due to Don's inattention. Don spends more time alone as Betty fails to connect with him emotionally. These are two people so consumed with their own lives and problems that they fail to empathize with each other. Betty ignores the overwhelming tension of Don's work, and Don dismisses any of Betty's pleas for help with the kids. Resentment is one of Three Sundays' prominent themes, echoed by Anita's question, What about me, father? The question seems superficially similar to Peggy's, Why do good people get hurt? from a scene in Nixon vs. Kennedy. But while Peggy stands up for others, Anita's pleas are self-serving. Anita is a dutiful Catholic. She follows the rules and attends to her family, but she's not rewarded with love and praise. At a glance, this does seem unfair. Why does Peggy attract everyone's love? Doesn't she make a lot of mistakes? This reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son, 
Another Bible story about jealousy and rebirth. A father has two sons. The older son serves his father responsibly. The younger son leaves home and squanders his inheritance. After many years, the younger son returns, and his father is overjoyed. The older son grows jealous, but the father says, We should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. Season 1 showed Peggy struggling to fit into the world of Madison Avenue. She leaves home seemingly unprepared for the world's cruelty. In Season 2, she seeks her family's support as she deals with the shame of her illegitimate child. While Anita grows to resent her, Father Gill suggests Peggy can still be saved. The Easter egg he gives her is another religious symbol, one rooted all the way back in Mesopotamia, where early Christians adopted the practice of decorating eggs to symbolize the tomb of Jesus, the resurrection, and redemption. Madman initially considered developing a relationship between Peggy and Father Gill, but I think the choice to avoid this story makes Father Gill more believable. He is, after all, a priest with sworn vows of celibacy, and his interest in Peggy is motivated by redemption. Remember that despite his youth, Father Gill is still a man of religion. His life's work is preaching the word of God, and in Peggy, Father Gill sees a soul worth saving. But by the end of the episode, Peggy's confidence is betrayed. Her Brooklyn community is no longer a place of safety, and she associates the church more with judgment than with redemption. After an episode like The Benefactor with such a focused story, Three Sundays feels more far-reaching, touching most of Mad Men's cast and picking up many of season two's established storylines. The episode examines the Draper's failing marriage amidst Roger's infidelity. It wraps up the Flight One disaster, leaving Don and Duck at odds, and it explores the idea of innocence through characters like Bobby, Peggy, and Sally. I've by now beaten to death Mad Men's success as a show rooted in thematic concepts. Perhaps no episode shows this better than Three Sundays. There are more characters and stories in this episode than anything we've seen in Season 2, and each gets very little time on screen. It would be easy for this episode to feel disconnected or superficial. But Three Sundays uses these fleeting moments to build its themes gradually, crafting deep investigations of resentment and innocence and nostalgia. Resentment is explored most obviously through Betty and Anita, and their characterization in Three Sundays reminds me of the Gospel's portrayal of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group that preached strict adherence to written and traditional laws. They believed all Jewish people should act as priests. In the Gospels, Jesus has several confrontations with Pharisees, who are depicted as rigid and unempathetic. I think Mad Men draws this comparison intentionally, showing how resentment grows from a lack of understanding for others. A relationship between innocence and fatherhood is repeatedly studied throughout Three Sundays' sweeping narrative. Madman more closely examines Don's influence on both of his children. Don reflects on this and remembers his own father. We see Roger at dinner with his daughter Margaret, and Father Gill has a significant role throughout the episode. We even sense that Peggy struggles with her father's absence. Amidst all the religious imagery, I think Madman makes a statement that we need our fathers as a guiding, accepting voice in our lives. The strongest moments in Three Sundays involve fatherly reassurance. But Three Sundays also shows poignant moments of nostalgia. It's a study in contrast, with characters reaching in opposite directions, Peggy and Sally increasingly exposed to the world, while Roger and even Don look longingly on the past. I think Mad Men expresses a melancholy truth here, that we can't see our youth fading or our innocence passing us by, that perhaps more of the world lays in front of us as children, while as adults, we're left to look back at the lives we've left behind. It reminds me of something Don said in For Those Who Think Young. Young people don't know anything, especially that they're young. 
Along with its thematic interpretations, Three Sundays reveals more about the 60s cultural notions around youth. We're venturing into an era of counterculture, an era that will divide generations. But I want to give Mad Men's examination of generational differences a full treatment, and this episode is already getting way too long for that. So I'm going to leave the topic for one of this season's bonus episodes. Trust me when I say, it will be worth the wait. This episode was submitted to the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences for Mad Men's Emmy Award nomination for Season 2. It's one of my favorites from Season 2, rich in subtext and themes. There are a few notable stories I've glossed over in my review. Joan's growing frustration as Don's secretary and Don's continued involvement with Bobby Barrett. And I've done this intentionally, because these stories will drive our next episode, The New Girl, a review of the women, past, present, and future, in Don's life. Hey everyone, just wanted to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast so you get the newest episodes as soon as they're dropped. I have an Instagram account where you can follow me at MadmenDeconstructed. You can also email me at MadmenDeconstructedPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you as always for listening, and I'll see you next episode.